Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Meet Kitty Collins, fighting the patriarchy one murder at a time. Have you ever walked home at night, keys in hand, ready to throw a punch in self-defense? That's how it all began. My killing spree, I mean. He was following me, that guy from the nightclub that wouldn't leave me alone. I hadn't intended to kill him, of course, but that's where my addiction started. I've got a taste for revenge, and quite frankly, I'm killing it. The new fiercely addictive thriller of 2023, How to Kill Men and Get Away With It by Katie Brent is out now. This is a deliciously dark, hilariously twisted story about friendship, love, and murder. Katie began writing during the Me Too movement and wanted her book to reflect a changing society. The protagonist, Kitty Collins, is a woman who has done everything right, everything expected of a woman in her late 20s. On the outside, she's pretty and inoffensive. She knows how a woman is supposed to behave. But now she's done being the good girl. How to Kill Men and Get Away With It takes a critical look at modern culture, specifically social media's celebrity culture and its absurdities. It also sheds light on the serious issue of male violence against women and girls, envisioning what a world would look like if we treated violence against men in the same almost trivial way. There are some content warnings we'd like to address, including rape, domestic violence, child abuse, childhood trauma, mental health, and obviously murder. This wickedly clever novel is perfect for fans of Promising Young Woman and Killing Eve. You can purchase How to Kill Men and Get Away With It by Katie Brent on bookshop.org, the HarperCollins website, or anywhere books are sold. Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, stopping by this time to talk to you about audiobooks and all the pleasure and comfort and convenience of them. I remember audiobooks being kind of weird and clunky and expensive when I was younger. They were the sort of thing that elders with vision problems or long-distance drivers used. And in fact, I do have a few lingering books on CD somewhere in my closet from cross-country drives. I learned from one of those drives that Ray Bradbury is not the ideal audiobook narrator, unless you're into kind of a rumbling storytelling method that aligns in decibel and tone with the sound of road noise. My audio copy of Fahrenheit 451. There was a little bit of stigma attached to audiobooks. And in some circles, I'm sure there still is. Sometime shortly after my initial introduction to them, I went right back to being a purist. And if you are a purist with no desire or intention of ever exploring audiobooks as a medium, don't let me shame you into trying them. I know they're not for everyone. I just do think they're for nearly everyone. But if you're avoiding them because you don't think that listening to an audiobook counts as actual reading, well, let's just clear that up right now. It does. I could tell you all about the research, about how reading and listening affect parts of your brain and recall and retention, but why? It's a little ableist, honestly, and unnecessary, and at its heart, it doesn't matter, because at its heart, reading is about being transported or enriched, entertained or edified, and it ultimately just does not matter if your medium of choice is a physical book or an audiobook. For me personally, it depends on the book. I love a hybrid model. No one's ever asked me why I like to read physical books, though. The weight, the smell of them, the ability to dog ear the pages or underlying passages, for instance. But people have asked me why I like to listen to audiobooks. So in no particular order, here are a few of my favorite reasons. I'm busy. Okay, I don't love, love, love this as a reason, but it is a legitimate reason. I have a lot going on day to day. My workday starts at 5 a.m., 
and I don't get time to sit down and read until usually around 9.30 at night. Without the assistance of audiobooks and ebooks, bless them, I would have so little time for the literature that makes my life so much more enjoyable. I can listen to books while I'm driving or doing mindless tasks in the office. I can listen to them while I'm doing yard work or cleaning my house. Sometimes I even listen to them in the shower. I love to be surrounded by books. Stories have created worlds of comfort around me since I was a kid, and they are still what I turn to when I feel depleted or want to relax. I wish I had more time to read physical books, but I simply do not. And rather than sacrifice that thing that feels intrinsic to my very personality, I'm instead deeply, deeply grateful to have another outlet. But speaking of being surrounded by books, I used to joke with people that I don't have a TV because I have nowhere to put it. There are bookshelves of every size in every room of my house, save the bathroom because moisture and humidity are not good for books. The rate at which I acquire books is astounding. People have stopped buying them for me out of fear of giving me a duplicate. I used to be a bookseller, now I am a book giver aware. Watch out every single little free library within walking distance of my house, I will fill you up. Dear friends come over to drop by and hang out, and they end up leaving with an armful of books. Family visiting? Sorry, I hope you left room in your luggage to bring books back because they are going with you. If I didn't have audiobooks, I would have zero friends left if I ever tried to move again, what with all the heavy boxes. And the floors of my house are probably grown under the weight of my collection. It's not a good scene. And I'm a minimalist anyway, in as much as you can be with a toddler, and I cannot tolerate extra clutter. So thank you, audiobooks, for letting me indulge in my book-collecting fantasies without literally burying me under text. One of my core childhood memories is curling up on the sofa with my siblings and drifting drowsily before bed while our mom read to us. She read those brutal-ass original Grimm's fairy tales because Gail did not mess around, but the comfort of that, oh, cannot be underestimated. You miss having someone read to you while you start to drift off to dreamland? Audiobooks, my friend. Audiobooks. Find a narrator whose dulcet tones lull you into relaxation and put that thing on sleep mode. Revisit as needed. It helps make insomnia bearable and distracts an anxious mind. Who doesn't like to be read to? All right, I bet I met one person who found it patronizing, but maybe that's one of the people for whom audiobooks are not a good fit. That person is clearly not me. When I'm having a rough night, I just turn on Stephen Fry's mythos and things start going right again. And you know what else audiobooks can do that physical books can't do? Tell you how something is pronounced. <laughs> I've read a lot of books not written by Western authors. I love to diversify my, my bookshelf, experience lives and cultures that don't just mirror my own. It's fucking fantastic. And I've gotten really into reading books from authors that I never would have ever been exposed to if I just followed traditional bestseller lists and the like. But if I am reading a physical book that incorporates names or phrases that are not commonly known to me, I do want to know how to say them correctly. And this doesn't just go for books outside of the Western canon. I am an autodidact who said Jojoba and biopic for an embarrassingly long time. So I can use all the help I can get. Just look at how much you can impress people at your next book club. Lastly, and this is so important to me, you can buy audiobooks that support small businesses, not unlike Feminist Book Club. If you aren't in a position to buy audiobooks, that is totally fine and capitalism is a scourge. Check out your local library and see what app they have. Mine uses Libby, and it's been a great way to access audiobooks without having to buy them. 
But if you do want to buy them, there are outlets for that which do not fund a trillionaire megalomaniac. Check out Libro FM. It's nearly identically priced, but it allows you to select an indie bookstore or small business to support with your purchases. You can even select to support Feminist Book Club. What a bonus to be able to direct your buying power for good and not for rocket ships. If you're on the fence about audiobooks, give them a shot. As a special bonus, Feminist Book Club will now be offering an audiobook option for our monthly subscription, which I'm super excited about. Please do check that out if it's your jam. They make air travel more fun, waiting at the DMVs more fun. Seriously, they can improve so many situations, and I am so thankful they are around and accessible. If you're looking for me, I am very occasionally around on Instagram at O underscore Murray, where I post rarely but comment and respond frequently. I'd love to hear about your favorite audiobooks or even your favorite narrators. My current favorites are Robin Miles, National Treasure, and Julia Whalen. Until next time, friends, be well. If you're a fan of funny, smart, snarky women writers like Samantha Irby, Lindy West, Sloane Crossley, or Jenny Larson, listen up. From award-winning TV writer Laura Belgrave, Tough Titties is a hilarious collection of full-body cringe, watch-through-your-fingers life lessons her own husband calls loser sex in the city. Laura's wildly relatable coming-of-age stories include hate-following her sixth-grade bully on social media decades later, moving home post-college to measure her self-worth in hookups with Upper East Side bartenders, dating a sociopathic man-baby, proving herself in the early 90s at New York's coolest magazine as the world's worst intern, falling for get-rich-quick schemes on the internet, and most of all, saying tough titties to the supposed twos in life. Driving a car, being on time, handing in your paperwork, learning to roast a chicken, and having kids. Peppered with cutting insights on our confusing, self-helpy culture that calls hair removal self-care and tells us to give our 110%, but also to give zero fucks, Tough Titties will leave you feeling better about, well, everything. Let's face it, we're all tired of shame spiraling after being told what to do when we know we're not going to do any of it. Tough Titties comes out June 13th from Hachette Books. Order from your favorite local bookstore or shop online at bookshop.org. Hi, my name is Ashley, a Feminist Book Club content contributor, and I am joined today with two of my fellow contributors. Can y'all introduce yourselves? I'm Ra. I'm the captain of commerce of Feminist Book Club. Uh, ready to party. And I'm Taylor. I'm another contributor with Feminist Book Club. And we are here today to talk about the novel The One by Julia Archie, I believe is her last name because we previously talked about reality TV shows and that they're actually real. And this book is centered on the behind the scenes of a reality show with the main character, Emily, who was a participant on this reality show, The One. And we were pitched this book and it was just a wonderful take on feminism and female relationships and relationships to appearance. So I wanted to give just some initial thoughts on the book. And one of the thoughts that I had was just, I really enjoyed it. It felt like that television show Diary that was on MTV eons ago. And it was like famous people. And the tagline, I think, was, you think you know, but you have no idea. And so it was like Britney Spears, 
Nelly Furtado and all of these artists, they will go on like a tour or something like that and MTV will follow them. And it was giving the behind the scenes and kind of the quote unquote realness of being a famous person and being in the limelight. And I really liked Emily as a main character, just learning about her and watching her be a part of this show that kind of treats women and props women in a certain way and just how the story unfolded. I just thought it was a wonderful read. So for me, I'm notorious for not reading synopsis and we're just like, oh yeah, like this book is about reality TV. And I'm like, oh great. And I thought it was nonfiction at Mm. I thought this was like a memoir of like a real person like on The Bachelor, but then I was like, why are they calling it The One? And I was like, oh, wait, it says The One, a novel, implying that it's not nonfiction. It was definitely just like an interesting take. I kind of felt the opposite about Emily. I felt that she wasn't that compelling of a character, but I think it worked with the story. Basically, I felt like Emily was kind of targeted because she didn't really have like a passion career. She didn't really have like all of these like cool hobbies. She was like from like just this like cookie cutter suburban like lifestyle and how they were able to kind of morph and create her into like the perfect protagonist for the dating show. She was perfect in the sense that she could be made into what they needed for their story. And first I was kind of like sucked into the book. And then I don't know, the it kind of got slow for me in the middle. That's why I put it down. And we're like, oh, we are having this conversation. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Most definitely. I, I feel like I went back and forth. As you can see, like I have a lot of tabs. I had a lot of things to say about this book just because it scratched an itch for me. I am very deep into reality TV lore. I will watch whatever it is. If it's messy, I'm probably there. I Taylor, I adore that you thought that this was a memoir. And, you know, I've done that before to a book and I didn't learn that it wasn't a memoir until like months later. And then I felt very embarrassed about that. So I'm happy we caught on. But initially, like, I really enjoyed it. It was really easy to read. Yeah, it was just that brain candy for me. And it was just an easy, easy read. I enjoyed it. I did not think Emily was a very compelling character as well, just because she's going to be playing that role of anything that she's supposed to be, if that makes sense. Like, she's that God, Madison Pruitt, is that her name? Or like Hannah, Hannah Brown? Yes, okay. She's like one of those kind of folks. Okay. That's what I'm picturing. And it's just like, oh, this is just another another white girl that is from a nice family. Great, <laughs> sounds good. And just like Dylan, he was also very cookie cutter. But what really got it for me for the one is just the, the change of pace in the middle where it became, becomes sapphic. So of <laughs> course, I love this book just because it became gay. Yes. And I think <laughs> what I mean by compelling, because there's two parts that I want to get into. One, and I think this is what Taylor touched upon, is like how the producers prop up Emily from like this Pollyanna, or like this kind of plain white, young white woman into this entity for this show to make her interesting. But I also was fascinated by the thread of faith 
in the book and particularly Catholicism into her sexuality and how that kept playing throughout the story. I wanted to know what you all thought about the repetition of Catholicism throughout the story. I forgot about that. So I guess it made no impression. (laughs) I did pay attention to it coming up. And I, at first I thought like it kept feeding into like this, like, okay, good Catholic white girl. But then like when it did take a sapphic turn, which by the way, I was like, wow, this kind of, well, I know it's not out of nowhere, but it felt like out of nowhere. And I don't know how I feel about that. Like but a twist I just did, to take a twist. <laughs> yes. But I did kind of connect it to like the thread of like Catholicism because it felt like, oh, well, it made sense. Emily came from this family where she had to repress everything from like even expressing her emotions to like expressing like who she was interested in. So I definitely think it played a role in this sounds terrible, but making her boring. <laughs> yeah, there was a passage in the book about Father Sheldon and how Emily was confessing to him about supporting gay people and her parents were irate. They were like, how would you tell that you support gay people? Do you know what that makes us look like? And it's just parts like that weaved into the story where, as you were saying, Taylor, we understand like how she is this kind of plain, boring white girl, white woman. There are parts that are peppered in to help us understand a bit of her background as she was being built into this entity for the show. I agree with that. What did you all think about Dylan as the male protagonist and the the person searching for love on the show? Immediately when I think of Dylan, I think of one of those nice guys Air quotes around nice guys who aren't really that nice and who think because they portray like a certain persona, they have a sense of entitlement towards women. So connecting it back to the incel shooting that is featured in the book, like, I feel like that nice guy and like that incel, like they aren't that different in that they feel entitled to women because They feel like, oh, I'm a good guy and I do X, Y, and Z, but why don't women like me? But Dylan is kind of like that brand of he can have any girl he wants, but because he's quote unquote nice, like he has that entitlement still. Mm -hmm. My notes seriously say Dylan is a piece of white bread and that's all. But that's what all the bachelors are. I see it. I see the vision. (laughs) Yeah. I guess I did not think that deeply about this book. Right. It was just fun for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree on both parts. There was a part in the book about a jumpsuit. And Emily was thinking, like, would a man know the difference between a dress and a jumpsuit? And I thought that that was so interesting because there are women who spend so much time, like, with their makeup and their hair and trying to look good and appease and attract. And if, you know, when she walks into a bar or a club, a man could truly care less when he sees something that he likes. He's like, you know, it could be jeans for all, all that counts. But 
just that line was so interesting to me in the bigger context of how women were used to appease this one piece of white bread man on the show. And they had like, right. And they had like meticulous lists of outfits to make sure they didn't repeat. Like no matter like what weather was, like you had to wear something like with skin showing, like it's all for like the male gaze. And uh, it's saying, it's interesting. Like I don't have that much experience watching like The Bachelorette, but I feel like it's the same. In this instance, Dylan has all the power of like, choice but like even if the roles are reversed and it's like the bachelorette like it's still yes she has some element of choice but still like she's doing things like what she wears her hair her makeup to be desirable for men no matter like if she's surrounded by men and she has her pick of them it's still like her actions are dictated by being desirable for men that makes me think of the recent Gabrielle Wendy and Rachel Recchia season that just happened. Rachel was ridiculed for what she was wearing a lot in the social media about like how she was dressed. People did not like how she was dressed. And they made that very clear. And it was definitely more couture, air quotes, couture. (laughs) And you can show like 16 variants of Dylan and they're like all just praised for being different. It's like the Spider-Man universe of Dylan's, it's yeah, it's like oh, you all act and look the same, but they're all just there to win the prize of this woman. Mm-hmm. And what did you all think of Miranda Wyatt? She was the producer on the show who was orchestrating everything. She had an incentive for having the top girl. That would mean that she could keep her job. I loved the behind the scenes look. I loved the fact that instead of getting more like. I'm going to call it screen time with Dylan in the book. Instead of having that, we had more time with Miranda to see what was happening behind the scenes and see how things were being manipulated and what roles people were put into. Yeah. And Miranda's interesting. She just wants to break some glass ceilings, but I feel like she's just kind of stuck. There's a part on page 171 where Miranda's trying to mass market uh, feminist rhetoric where she's trying to get Emily to say like she's a feminist on television and talk about values that aren't really Emily's and herself then and there. But yeah, it's interesting to think about what producers can make your cast members say. And yeah, oh, she's fun. I thought she was like the epitome of like the capitalist feminists where it's just like money over everything and like I don't care who's back I have to stand on and yes I may be like oh like promoting feminist topics and like wanting them to push a certain narrative but like I'm not living that by actively pitting women against each other and like causing drama I don't think this was a Miranda part but when like she and Emily were doing like one of like the professional things And she's like, me and my mom used to do this thing where, like, I was feeling bad about a friend or whatever. She would have me share, like, all of the bad thoughts about the friend just to get it out, get it off my chest. And for her to, like, prompt Emily just to, like, essentially talk shit about, like, the other contestants, like, on camera just to create drama. And it's like, 
is that really feminist? Mm-hmm. How does the old saying go? Gaslight, gatekeep, girl boss? Yeah, the whole feminism part when Emily is asked if she's a feminist and then she says, yeah, I guess, was very telling. Like, I mean, you can just say no. <laughs> yeah, I, there were traumatic things happening. This book does make me think about this group called You Can, though. Have y'all heard of You Can yet? No. So You Can is, it stands for the Unscripted Cast Advocacy Network, and it's founded by two ex-contestants from Love is Blind. And basically, they're like kind of a reality star union, or they're trying to work towards getting more mental health resources and like law resources to reality TV stars, which is fantastic. And I know in one of our previous conversations, we were saying how there are no resources for people. Well, since our last conversation, now there is, or there's starting to be more resources and things are coming out more about producer manipulation and how people were mistreated on set or things that happened behind the scenes. Wow. That's really interesting too, because there was a therapist like on set that like they had to go to like therapy sessions. And I was just like, I thought that whole like concept was like really interesting to like watch unfold because it's like, oh, Emily is struggling. Like, therapist swoop in and like talk to her because like we don't want her to like drop out the show or whatever and they kind of reminded me of just like I don't know I have very specific feelings about HR and how I feel like HR isn't there to protect the employee they're there to protect the organization and like that therapist is there to protect the show and like make sure that consistence can stay as long as they can or I don't know, but like that whole scene where they're talking, oh, everything is confidential, yet they're sharing everything to the producers when they do check-ins and like the producers can see all of the notes. Like how ethical is that? Is that really like a therapy session? Like all of your actions, like even when you think it's a confidential therapy session, they are being monitored and watched. Listen. Confidential. That's for sure. <laughs> Who it's do you like, trust in those situations? It's like the big, big brother within this reality show, but one. So I guess, well, my last question would be, would you participate on the one? And what are your lasting thoughts with the novel? No. I also feel like in a previous conversation, we said that I would go on reality television. I had a conversation recently with a friend about how I am not cut out for reality TV. I am way too short with people. I come off too sharp and people won't like me in the house. So unless I'm going in as a villain, don't do it. And I don't even think I can commit that hard to villainry. So no. And, you know, I love the one. I put it in my stack of reality television books. So it has a place on my shelf. Oh, it's funny enough. I actually submitted an application to be on Love is Blind. Oh, immediately regret. But I will be the perfect one because I will be the bleeding heart. Like, my heart's broken. Like, I'm so sad. I'm watching, like, the love of my life be with all these other women. So, like, I'm way too sensitive to be on the one or any reality TV show. My feelings would get hurt very easily. It seems like I thought this book was all bad, but no, there's like a lot of like, I kind of read into like 
between the lines with like a lot of social commentary, which was very like interesting to read about. I'm like, you actually, I like books around social commentary. This was just very different from what I'm used to reading, but I definitely want to explore more the kind of reality TV fiction world. Yeah, I I would not go on the one. You will not find me in the casita, which was like the kind of hookup boom boom room. I enjoyed the book. It's interesting. It's always great to talk about these kinds of books or just books in general with fellow readers because to hear other perspectives. So that that this has been a treat. And yeah, pick up the one. It's a, it's an interesting read. Great social commentary, as we've talked about, and get your have your own perspective on Emily. And this was wonderful. Thank you so much for talking about this book, Ra and Taylor. And this is Ashley. And take care. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh.